Republicans can't handle the truth, Marjorie minimizes the Holocaust, and a Virginia giant leaves us at 94. A disheartening week on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Lee to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 366 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. By the looks of things, if there is going to be a January 6th commission to study the causes of the insurrection led by a Trump-inspired mob to attack the U.S. Capitol, it's going to have to take some adjustment to the Senate's filibuster rules. Republican leaders who four-plus months ago showed no hesitancy in blaming Donald Trump for his role in the attack on democracy are now singing a different tune. Now the feeling is that whatever the commission is going to conclude, it won't be good for the grand old party. Any focus on Trump will not help their cause in next year's midterm elections, where Republicans would rather spend time on President Biden's failures. But some of the excuses strain credulity. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said, Given the political misdirections that have marred this process, given the now duplicative and potentially counterproductive nature of this effort, and given the Speaker's short-sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America, I cannot support this legislation. This coming from the guy who back in 2015 openly praised the Benghazi hearings because of the problems that brought Hillary Clinton. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right? But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. What are her numbers today? So now McCarthy is saying, well, there should be no January 6th commission because it doesn't include the riots and disorder caused by Antifa in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots last year as if that had anything to do with anything. Oh, did I mention that 35 Republicans voted for the bill when it passed the House last week? And for Mitch McConnell, it was more of his, I'm opposed because it might help the Democrats. I do not believe the additional extraneous commission that Democratic leaders want would uncover crucial new facts or promote healing. Frankly, I do not believe it is even designed to do that. And so, on Friday, the GOP filibustered the bill. The vote in the Senate was 54 to 35, short of the magic 60, with just six Republicans voting with the Democrats. Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, and Rob Portman. So, if Biden and Chuck Schumer want to make this commission happen, they get rid of or adjust the filibuster, right? Wrong. The Democrats may control the Senate, but they don't necessarily control all 50 Democrats. Both West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Sinema have made it clear they will refuse to change the filibuster rules without a bipartisan agreement. If Biden and Schumer don't have all their ducks in a row, how are they going to succeed? And thus, until these Democrats can come up with some solution, there's not likely to be a January 6th commission. Or, for that matter, a voting rights bill, or gun safety legislation, or LGBTQ rights, 
or police reforms or immigration laws. Try to see it my way. Only time will tell if I am right or I am wrong. Why do you see it your way? There's a chance that we might fall apart before too long. We can work it out. Republicans have had a tough time lately in the Commonwealth of Virginia. They've lost four straight presidential elections, and that's after having won 10 in a row. Since GOP incumbent John Warner was last elected in 2002, Republicans have lost six Senate races in a row. And they've lost four out of the last five gubernatorial contests. In November, voters will be choosing a new governor. Virginia is the only state that does not allow a governor to succeed himself in a consecutive election. And so, like with his predecessors, Democratic incumbent Ralph Northam is term limited. And the two parties are offering stark contrasts in the race to replace him. The Democrats, if polls and money are any indication, look ready to pick a former governor as their nominee. Terry McAuliffe was first elected in 2013 and by most accounts was very popular. A longtime power figure in the party, McAuliffe had been urged over the years to run for president, but being governor seems to have been his true love all along, and he's the betting favorite to win the nomination in the June 8th Democratic primary. The Republicans, on the other hand, picked their nominee at a state convention, and unlike the very well-known McAuliffe, they selected someone few people have heard of, Glenn Youngkin, a former chief executive of the Carlyle Group, who is making his first run for public office. It may be the most important contest of this off year. And joining us to discuss what's at stake is Bob Holsworth, one of the smartest analysts on Virginia politics anywhere. Bob, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Uh, Great to be with you again, Ken. It's great to have you, Bob. And let me start off with the Democrats, because they're the party in power. I noticed that McAuliffe, the former governor, He's basically acting like he's already his party's nominee. He's been attacking Youngkin as little more than a Trump clone. And and while I'll get to the Republicans in a minute, do you think what McAuliffe is doing is making sense? I mean, is he the all but certain Democratic nominee? I think he's certainly the favorite. And then beyond that, I think it's very important for Terry McAuliffe that he doesn't get into a tit-for-tat fight, you might say, uh, with his opponents in this race, because it's going to be imperative for him to once again bring the Democratic coalition together, along with some moderates, in order to win the race. Um, two of his strongest challengers in this race, Jennifer McClellan and Jennifer Carroll Foy, are um, both African-American women who are well-liked. McClellan, particularly throughout the Democratic Party, and Foy is seen as uh, probably a more progressive alternative uh, to McAuliffe, and he's going to need all those votes and their energy and their enthusiasm if he's the nominee. So I think he's acting uh, very smartly right now, focusing on Youngkin, trying to um, emphasize his ties to Trump, because what he also knows is that Glenn Youngkin is likely to spend more money than Terry McAuliffe. Um, he has su- suggested that he might put up to 50 to $75 million of his own dollars into this race. And so my sense is that McAuliffe is running um, a smart campaign right now, particularly because the polls, for however well they're um, you know, worth in a primary, do show him with a big advantage. And he has a lot of the establishment Democratic support 
um, through, throughout the Commonwealth. He has a lot of the major legislative leaders and most of the uh, state's uh, most prominent uh, African-American mayors are supporting McAuliffe. You know, what's, what's likely to happen, I think, I think Youngkin's nomination may have even enhanced McCall's position inside the Democratic Party in Virginia, largely because uh, many Democrats are now recognizing that Youngkin, who has a relatively minimal record, um, is already downplaying some of the stances he took to appeal to the most conservative uh, part of the Republican base in the nomination struggle. And they recognize that... Um, you know, the Democrats are going to have a person who's going to have a lot of access to resources if they're going to be able to win this race again. And um, Terry McAuliffe is uh, a proven, uh, you know, sort of warrior in that, in, in that kind of fight. You know, I noticed that uh, when we're talking about endorsements, Northam didn't endorse his own lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, which leads to this thought, which I've had for several years now, that you know, Democrats were rocked when first Governor Northam was uh, hit with a, a blackface scandal, and then Lieutenant Governor Fairfax was uh, being accused of sexual assault. And yet, Democrats seem to have been doing quite well in the Commonwealth. You know, Joe Biden carried the state. Democrats were holding their newly won House seats. It feels like the scandals, which I was convinced was going to bring the Democratic Party down, seems to have been mostly forgotten. They certainly have subsided, and and the reason uh, is, I think, a reason that is maybe peculiar to Virginia, maybe not, is that, uh, you know, as the state right next door to Washington, D.C., and where you had uh, President Trump saying he was going to drain the swamp in Washington, um, you know, that message may work well uh, in large parts of the rural areas of the country. It does not work well in the suburbs right outside of uh Washington, D.C., in the most populous part of Virginia. And so what happened is that Virginia politics has become increasingly nationalized. That's the challenge, I think, that the Republicans actually face in Virginia right now is, you know, is somebody like Yunkin, who is a fresh face, somebody that uh, people don't know, will he be able to erase sort of the toxic, the toxicity that has been attached to the Republican Party in Virginia since Donald Trump came here? As you mentioned earlier, there has been a trend even before Trump of Virginia turning blue. And Trump just exacerbated and compounded uh, the Republican problems in Virginia. And this is going to be a critical election because people are thinking this is, in effect, the first election of 2022. I noticed that almost immediately after the convention, uh, when Youngkin got the nomination, Donald Trump endorsed him. And then immediately after that, the Democrats reminded everybody that Donald Trump endorsed them. Can a candidate align with Trump win statewide, or do you think Trump is just a distraction? Um, a person who is aligned and, and, is, and is going to promote that has no possibility of winning statewide in Virginia. Youngkin, I think, um, accepted the endorsements that he was happy to have it the first day after the convention, and he hasn't mentioned Trump since. He hasn't mentioned the positions he has taken uh, on guns. He hasn't mentioned the position he took on abortion. He hasn't mentioned the position he took on election integrity to some extent, though he, though he still he, he still raised the issue of voter ID. But for the most part, Yunkin is going to abandon, you might say, any public connection to Trump in Virginia because that is simply anathema 
in the uh, suburban areas where Republicans have suffered in the um, D.C. suburbs, the suburbs around uh, Virginia Beach, where you have a heavy military component, and the suburbs in the Richmond area where the Republicans have just lost vote after vote over the last 15 years. And I think Youngkin is smart enough to recognize uh, that Trump has just been uh, a millstone around the neck of Republicans uh, in these areas. I noticed that, that, that when, when he was pressed, uh, Youngkin acknowledged that Joe Biden was the country's duly elected president. That seems almost crazy that it needed to be said, but that's, that's what's happened to the party. Yeah, and I would say that even that was, I'm not quite sure he exactly said it in that way. He said Joe Biden is the president. Um, you know, he suggested that factually Biden is the president. <laughs> Dear God. Uh, he did not necessarily say he was duly elected, <laughs> you know, and that he won the election. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a difference of nuance. And so that is what you're, you're seeing as he tries to, you know, walk this tightrope between the Trump base and what Republicans need to do in the suburbs. Something, you know, li- listening to a, a new kind of, a, a new, brand new candidate like Youngkin, I think the key might be, and I'm thinking of what Mitt Romney went through in 2012, but the key for Youngkin may be to define himself before the Democrats do it for him. Because, you know, the Democrats will, would love to define Youngkin as a, as a Trump extremist. Exactly. And that's, that, that is the challenge for the Democrats. Youngkin, as soon as he was nominated, made a big television buy. So while the Democrats are now still in their own um, primary season, Youngkin is going to be out defining himself as, you know, you know, not another politician, someone who's going to bring, you know, the experience in business and uh, going to deal with the problems in Virginia. But the, the, the challenge is to find, for the Republicans, is to find a problem that resonates. For example, the, the day after the nomination, uh, Youngkin said that Re- Governor Ralph Northam has driven Virginia into the ditch. That's not how Virginians see it. That's how Republicans see it. Um, but Northam remains relatively popular. The Virginia economy is an economy that has weathered the pandemic extremely well. There are issues, I think, that Youngkin can point to, but I'm not even sure they will be still um, all that prominent come November. But, you know, people have been very frustrated with remote learning in the schools. And that's an issue that really appeals to uh, suburbanites there. There's been tremendous frustration with that. Um, But by and large, when Virginians look at Ralph Northam, they think he did a pretty good job as governor. They think that, you know, at the end of the day, he did a good job with COVID. And, you know, the notion that somehow Virginia has been driven into the ditch, not going to make a lot of sense to Virginians, I don't think. So it's important for Youngkin to do this pivot but he's going to have to find an issue or two that really appeal to these suburban voters and not just the uh, Republican base. Virginia has a history, as you well know, of, uh, of picking governors from the opposite party of the person in the White House. That would seem to benefit Youngkin, but, but maybe things are changing. Well, that's a great point, because I think that in, in, in part, was the in part the, the motivation behind Republicans believing they really have a good shot here. They, you know, because what traditionally has happened, uh, particularly if there's a Democrat in office, that, uh, and it's happened the other way too, except for McAuliffe's election in um, 2013 for the last 40 years, Virginians have gone the other way. They've, they've basically, uh, if you had a Republican in the White House, they elected a Democrat as governor and vice versa. 
Um, at the same time, there's become so much polarization and picking of sides that it's not going to be that easy for that to occur. Youngkin is probably the best, even though he has a minimal record, he's probably the best candidate the Republicans could have chosen out of that group, in part because he has a minimal record, in part because he has the resources to present himself as a, you know, sort of a candidate of the suburbs. But the challenge is bringing together that Trump base in the rural areas and the suburbs in Virginia. Um, so in the nomination battle, he sounded more like Donald Trump coming into, um, you know, the general election. He's going to talk like he's, um, you know, Larry Hogan or Charlie Baker. And the question is, is that is Virginia going to revert to this historical norm or have things changed, as you implied, uh, to the extent that, you know, there's not that much crossover any longer, that all the Democrats are going to, you know, the people have chosen their sides and they're going to stick with it. And that is the challenge that Youngkin faces. And again, because he's, he's, he's good on television, he has tremendous resources. I was extremely impressed with his um, nominating um, contest strategy that managed to um, bring together a lot of people who were just frustrated with Republicans losing while at the same time appealing uh, very strongly to evangelicals. He did a great job, but he's really going to have to do that again if he's going to find a way to, um, you know, in some ways, uh, turn the tide on all these Republican losses that we've seen. Let me just end this with with a thought. Uh, we were talking about how the Republican Party has changed and how the Republican Party is not winning races in Virginia. And I thought of, I think of um, John Warner, the, the former five-term senator, Republican senator who died this week. Any thoughts of what kind of Republican John Warner was and how, why we don't see him anymore, that uh, people like him anymore? Yeah, you know, John Warner is the kind of uh, politician that people often say today they'd like to see more of, even though we don't, um, we don't see too many of them. He was somebody who crossed the aisle. He was somebody who was, had, had, had a strong independent streak um, on his own, supported, uh, did not support Oliver North when he ran against Chuck Robb. Uh, in 1994, supported the third-party candidate that actually uh, enabled Rob to win re-election that year. He has supported some Democrats over over the years, but he was also a strong supporter of the military, a strong supporter of Virginia's role in the national defense, uh, and an extraordinary uh, gentleman as well. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing John Warner, and um, just a remarkably uh, decent, gracious uh, human being. He was, um, you know, represented what we call a politician as a public servant, not somebody who was primarily interested, you know, in their own ambition, in their own, um, you know, ascent. He comes from a different era. I think a lot of people um, who remember that era, uh, you know, have just extraordinarily fond memories of, of John Warner and what he meant to politics. But at the same time, we have to recall that he was one of the first folks that, you know, that many Republicans attacked as being essentially a rhino uh, in that sense. You know, you started talking about how we, we, we love to talk about politicians who try to bring consensus. But today in both parties, if you try to bring consensus, you are immediately challenged as a traitor and, and invite a primary from the uh, extreme wing of your party. 
Yeah, and he actually, um, you know, he, he had to face some of them himself. But he was he was so well liked in Virginia, he managed to overcome that. Um, but today, this kind of political figure, as you said, on the right, or you know, would be attacked on the right or the left uh, in some ways. But but Warner left a, a deep legacy in Virginia. Um, you know, interestingly enough, Mark Warner ran against him for Senate, lost, and now Senator Mark Warner. Uh, ultimately, um, in the years after he became elected, became extraordinarily good friends with John Warner. And that respect uh, ran very, very deep. And so uh, Warner was uh, probably represented, you know, represented the best of the old style Virginia politics, uh, a style that we no longer have. Bob Holsworth is a longtime expert on Virginia politics. Bob, it's it's always great to have you on the program, even if some of our memories are uh, fading very quickly, right? <laughs> okay. Well, great to be with you again, Ken. As Bob Holsworth and I mentioned, John Warner died this week at age 94. The five-term Republican senator from Virginia, who in 1978, when he was first running for the Senate, was considered a dilettante and a lightweight, and who barely won his election that year, became a treasured public official who was respected by Democrats and independents alike. In fact, in his later career... The voters who perhaps liked him the least were conservative Republicans. For his vote against a Bork Supreme Court nomination, for his opposition to GOP Senate nominee Oliver North in 1994, for his not guilty vote during the impeachment trial of President Clinton. I had John Warner on The Political Junkie in February of 2018 to talk about that vote on Clinton and his long career. I'm replaying that interview now. Wherefore, William Jefferson Clinton, by such conduct, warrants impeachment and trial and removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But Clinton was acquitted. On this vote, the yeas are 59, the nays are 41. Two-thirds of those senators voting, a quorum being present, not having voted in the affirmative, the motion is not agreed to. There were two votes, one on perjury and the other on obstruction of justice. One of the most dramatic votes, the only one that resulted in an outburst from the gallery, came from John Warner, the Republican from Virginia, during the perjury vote. Mr. Warner, Mr. Warner, not guilty. John Warner's vote was controversial. He would be up for re-election in two years, and he knew it would enrage conservatives, which it did. But it was part of a 30-year Senate career which, while mostly conservative, sometimes broke with his party. But it was enough to win five terms, including his last one, in 2002, when Democrats didn't even put up a candidate against him. John Warner is here to talk about that Clinton vote and more. Senator Warner, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. 
Well, uh, what's left of the old boy is right here. Why don't you just have at him the way you want to go at it? Well, that's the way I like him. I, I, I want you right there, Senator Warner, and I, I really i am thrilled that you're here on The Political Junkie. You know, I remember that vote that day in 1999, the, that gasp in the, in, the, in the gallery when you voted not guilty. Did you wonder if that vote was going to hurt you back home, or, or did you not consider— I had the good fortune in life to uh, attend the University of Virginia— law school. I then uh, went on and I became a law clerk to a federal judge and then an assistant United States attorney. Uh, And then, of course, I had a short period with private law firms before I came to the Senate. So the rule of law has been something that I've honored all my life. And I tried and I think I succeeded to eliminate any political thoughts in my mind throughout the entire trial on the impeachment indictment from the House in the Senate. And I tried to make my decisions as if I were a juror just sitting in the box, listening to the trial lawyers debate it and the witnesses giving their testimony. And then to make up my own mind independently uh, and in absolute fairness, consistent with the law. And that's the way I cast that vote. So politics be damned. I uh, did it the way I felt based on my long training, quite extensive training in the law at that point in time in my career. A lot of people would describe your career as exactly that, politics be damned, doing doing what the best was for your state and and your conscience. Now, you did find uh, Clinton guilty on the obstruction of justice charge, but but neither article of impeachment received a majority of the vote. That is correct. I had a split vote. Right. Did you know, did your fellow senators know that the votes to convict were not there from the beginning? Uh, That's too far back in memory for me. I don't know that... um, I uh, tried to get into the minds of the leadership. uh, And then there's one other characteristic of that proceeding that I remember ever so clearly. The Senate in those days was what I call a fairly jovial place, unlike today. We shared each other's lives, uh, jokes, uh, dined with each other, frequently visited with the wives and the family of other senators. And it was more of a, a tight-knit individual group pulled together uh, by a common cause to do our job in the United States Senate. At this impeachment proceeding, uh, I detected that many of my colleagues and good friends, and they did it uh, unintentionally or intentionally, just sort of withdrew within themselves as if to say, this is one tough thing I've got to do, a difficult call. I'm obligated to do it by virtue of my being a member of the Senate, and I'm going to do it as best I can. And as a consequence, you'd be surprised. We didn't cluster with each other and talk and gossip about what was going on. Everybody was kind of quiet and silent for those days, because it was a, a sort of a foreboding experience for all of us. And we pulled within our own consciences and 
and hopefully men and women of the Senate voted those consciences, as did I. So I don't know what the chit-chat and the chatter and so forth. The cloakrooms kind of fell silent in a way from the normal laughter and joviality and recognizing the heavy weight of the seriousness of that decision. You were in the Senate for Presidents Carter, Reagan, both Bushes, Clinton and Obama. Um, and of, of course, you were Navy Secretary under Richard Nixon, I know that. But which president were you closest with? Probably, personally, Ronald Reagan. Um, I knew him when he was governor, and I hosted some functions here in Washington with the Republican Party. I'll never forget one night we hired uh, the Mayflower Hotel, and we had a huge banquet. had about four or 500 people in the cocktails, having the cocktails. And he pulled me aside, and he says, I want to go check the rostrum. And I said, yeah, sure, let's go, Gov. And so we went in, and the waiters were busily finishing setting the table and pouring ice water as they were doing. And he looked at the rostrum. He said, i got to jack this thing up. So we found something to jack up the rostrum. And then in those days, in, in most of his speeches, he had a, a, a deck of three-by-five flip cards. And he would put those cards on the... Uh, on the stand and quietly flip them and his eye would catch just a little bit. He was magnificent in his ability to read a note, but always get his eyes back on the audience. So anyway, and then a waiter came in with a tray full of ice water, hit the rostrum, banged the thing down. Cards went all over the floor. And and at the same time, they opened the doors for the cocktail people to come in. They're coming in. And here's the governor, and I'm down on our hands and knees picking up his flip cards. Then we had to get them back in order again. <laughs> but I just mentioned that story because he used to come to my farm. I had a, a, a horse farm, and I used to love horses, and he loved horses. He'd call up and say, I'm, i got to get out of Washington. i I, I just got to get out of Washington. John, if I can get on one, the back of one of those horses, I can forget the world. And we'd go down and ride on my farm together. One of my most cherished pictures of riding together down on the farm. I was going to say, rather than talk about Reagan, I want to talk about more about John Warner. Oh, the heck with him. He's, he's an old fud. And he's... Don't you remember him? He was in the Senate for 30 years. He was... I'm, yeah, I'm missing a few words. You're talking too fast. Slow down. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that you don't remember John Warner. He's that guy who was in the Senate longer than anybody else in Virginia history, except for Harry Byrd Sr. That's right. Harry Byrd Sr. served 32 years. I served 30. That's right. And I'm the second longest serving in the 200-plus years history of senators coming from Virginia to the Senate. So how much, and then the, the follow-up question is, how much did you love the Senate? I loved it very dearly. I really did. Uh, it was my home. Uh, it was my life. And uh, my family did the best they could to get adjusted to it. Um, although my wife at that time, a lovely lady, I always to this day respect her, she finally and made a decision that she wanted to go back to Europe, where she was born, and she made movies at that time. And, and so we peacefully had a split the sheets, but we were good friends for all the years, right up until she died here not long ago. She was a good woman. Anyway. Was that, wait, was that Elizabeth Taylor? Yeah, that was Elizabeth, yeah. The reason I mentioned that is because when you were first elected in 1978, 
and I remember the I remember the election so well. I remember the the coverage about it. It was it was so much about your marriage to Elizabeth Taylor and your wealth and and you were a socialite and and yet when you retired after two thousand eight, everything everything everybody wrote was about your intellect and your leadership and your independence. So so I mean I know a lot of people can change in thirty years, but the the way that people saw you when you came into the Senate in 1979 were certainly different than the way people saw you when you were leaving in 2009. Well, remember, I had a rather rocky road getting into the Senate. I do. We had a four-way, basically a primary with four of us running, a former retired governor, a state legislator, a very fine man, and uh, the chairman of the Republican Party. Richard Obenchain. Yeah, all very able uh, people. And uh, Linwood Holton was the former governor. And uh, anyway, uh, we ran against the attorney general, Andy Miller. Right, the Democrat. Whose family had been in Virginia politics for years, and he was a very able man. And uh, we went to a convention, and I lost. There were 10,000 people that attended the convention in Richmond to pick from four candidates for the Senate. And they picked fairly and squarely Dick Obenshain. And I lost to him on the, uh, I survived three votes uh, and then lost on the fourth to him, fair and square. It was a very narrow loss. I remember got up the next morning and um, uh, I, I kissed my good wife and said, I'm going to a breakfast for him. Took him a check for his campaign and went over and wished him well at his breakfast and packed up the bags with the wife and went on back to our farm and we were living quietly and I appeared made two appearances with him in his campaign to show solidarity and support and then uh, that fateful night occurred and I remember very well Barry Goldwater had asked me and my wife to come up to a speech he was giving in Boston. And uh, when he attended his speech that night, and I woke up early in the morning because I was going to address the Rotary Club of Boston at noon, and I'm looking at the Today Show, and they flashed up on the screen that a small plane carrying the Virginia candidate for Senate had crashed, and uh, he lost his life. And Obenshain was coming into the airport down there, a small airport, and those little single-engine planes that we all flew in campaign, and the tail hit the top of a tree, and, and he lost his life. And um, it took a long time for me to try to explain to her that we had to keep going. But we didn't go down and in any way try and say to the state or anything that we wanted to succeed him. And we quietly went to the funeral, and once it was over, we went straight home. And then the party started his work for a couple of days, and finally they came up and uh, asked if I would do it. And uh, after a number of others turned it down, I, I hasten to say, the rest is history. So I only had less than 90 days, is my recollection, to put together a campaign. And it was mission impossible in the eyes of some of the more skilled politi political people in that state. They asked the members of Congress, understandably, each one, the House of Representatives, the Republicans, who I think were five at that time, and none of them would want it. It's impossible to raise all the money, put the staff together to 
And Miller was running a very tight race at that time, close race with Obenshain. You know, it's it's in, it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking of that day, and I remember that, that <clears throat> I remember that plane crash so well. And you got to the Senate by these tragic circumstances, and yet, almost like like you know, almost like an afterthought, and yet you stayed there thirty years. So, you must have done something right. Well, I I buckled down, did my homework, and thoroughly liked it, and. Uh, I I wasn't in the Senate a week until I started campaigning in every county, not necessarily campaigning, but going into every county to introduce myself and speak to all the folks in their local, you know, Rotary clubs, and civic clubs, whatever they were. Get ten people today together, I'd give them a talk. So um, I enjoyed it and got to know the Senate and convinced them that uh, I had enough of the good old Virginia country boy in me. Did Elizabeth like the Senate? In the beginning, she did, but then the, the uh, weekends, and we d- weren't able to make the plans that we, she liked to do things, and and it and I'd get home late at night. Uh, we worked hard in the Senate in those days, and the hours were pretty uh, pretty rough. But uh, she she grew weary of it, and she went back on the on the stage here in the United States and did plays in New York and. Um, Florida, I remember she opened one in Miami. And so she was on the road a lot to going back to her profession she knew best, and she enjoyed it because sitting around the house, there wasn't much to do. So anyway, we we had a good, solid understanding, and we had a, it was a sad depart, but we stayed friends. I took her to dinner as much after we were divorced as I did before she was divorced. You always had this reputation for working with both Democrats and Republicans, and you me- and you mentioned how much you liked uh, Bob Dole. Who were some of the other favorite senators you worked with, especially Democrats? I liked, uh, oddly enough, old Ted Kennedy. I uh, had a place up on Cape Cod, then, or at least the family did, and I visited and got to know him. And uh, and I liked, uh, you know, old Fritz Hollings and, and uh, John Stennis, uh, Southern senators, that southern group of senators, Jim Eastland, they were the, the great teachers in the Senate at that time. And I learned to work with the the old-time southern senators. It was quite a block of them. And they uh, they were able to stay in the Senate for as long as they wanted if they you know, kept clean, and they did. Um, and they became chairman of the committees. You look at, go back and look at the chairman of the committees in those early years in the Senate. But you know, you you mentioned Eastland and and Hollings, those are, that was back in the day when their Democrats were elected to the Senate in the South. You don't see that much anymore. That's correct. Well, they, 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 no, the Democrat Party was the dominant party in the yep. South. Yep. You got to remember. I'll give you one little statistic uh, that's kind of interesting. In the state of Virginia, they controlled the United States Senate seat for one hundred years, and then a, a congressman by the name of Bill Scott. I helped in his campaign. 1972. He, he came in 72 and beat a fellow named Bill Spong, who was a very able uh, senator, by the way. He was a strong Democrat, good ties throughout his party. But he, he was a little bit of aloof, and he felt that this guy was not up to Virginia's this quality that Virginia was looking for. But by gosh, he pulled it and got him. And uh, but Scott, once he got in the Senate, he just kind of didn't work out for him, either him or the Senate. And uh, 
he left, and I became the first senator, Republican senator, in a hundred years to get into the Senate and reelected, and from the state of Virginia. And you were reelected four times. Yeah. You know, I remember. I mean, I can't think of a time when you raised your voice in a debate or or you got personal with an opponent. How do you see today's Senate? I mean, how, compare today's Senate to when you served. Well, let me uh, sort of go back a minute and uh, characterize the Senate that I knew. And in do so, and so doing, I'm not critical of any of the intervening Senates since I left. I've been out now 10 years. But it was a unique Senate in the history for the following reasons. One, 75% on the average, 75% of the senators that I served with in those first years in the Senate, and really right all, almost to, to the end, 75% were veterans. Now you'll say, well, that's interesting. Well, uh, they were veterans, and those of us that had the privilege, and I say this very earnestly, of wearing the uniform of this country, have some things in common. It doesn't make any difference if you're Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, whatever the case may be, or your ethnicity, none of that counts. The most important thing is you were taught the fundamentals in the military from day one to respect your fellow soldiers, sailors, airmen, and so forth, because you'll never know as you go through your military career when your life depends on that individual performing correctly his or her duties so as to enable both of you to survive. And I was not a great hero. I served in the Navy in the last two years of World War II, all trained, ready to go in on the, in battle, uh, the invasion of Japan, when unexpectedly there was a bomb and it was dropped and the war ended. But I remember those days very well. And back to the Senate, that training in the military, you had a common bond. And no matter how furiously we may have fought each other on the floor, there was always that opportunity to when you sat down with your fellow service person and said, hey, remember, it's duty on our country. We've got to solve this thing. Now let's figure out who will give much, what little bit here and there and to get a compromise. And time and time again, that old solid military training, country first, came into play to resolve tight situations that had to be had to be pulled apart and reconstructed and put back together again and voted on. Do you do you miss the Senate or is the Senate no longer the same institution when you were there? No, I miss the Senate. I stay glued all night long, losing sleep, watching that thing whenever they're in a the filibuster or anything else. Senator John Warner served 30 years as a Republican senator from Virginia, ending with his retirement in 2008. Senator Warner, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, I thank you. Uh, the country is still strong. We must not lose faith in our constitutional structure of government, uh, the ability for good men and women to come forward and serve. Uh, and uh, while I'm not going to characterize exactly how things are going, because I'm not sure I fully understand all the ins and outs of the current administration. But uh, 
the Republic stands strong, and it's a beacon of hope all across the world. So I enjoyed visiting with you. I don't know that we added a single thing to the listening audience, but uh, I enjoyed the experience to hear your voice again after these many years. You had a very distinguished career in journalism yourself. So you carry on. I my my bugle is no longer blowing. I was going to say between between my career and you being that old codger you are. Hey man, I'm become 91 years old next week. Got that? I got it. I deserve a little respect from <laughs> you, my buddy. You got it. Happy birthday, Senator. Take care. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And remember, with Father's Day fast approaching, can you think of a better gift than a Political Junkie t-shirt and socks? Me neither. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com you can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com donate. And one more note. To those who reached out following my latest health setback, thank you. It means the world. I'm getting better, and hopefully we all are. I'm Ken Rudin. As always, thanks for listening, and please stay safe. I'll see you soon.